Welcome to the Reminders of Grace podcast. The Reminders of Grace podcast exists to provide a reference for truth, promote a refocus on the gospel, and to provoke a profound reminder of grace for our lives today. I am your host, my name is Derek, and I want to welcome you to this show. I hope and pray that you've been well since we've last engaged here on this podcast. There is a lot going on in our world these days, but there is a king who is reigning over everything. And though it may seem like a mess, though it may seem to us at times like he's uninvolved or uninterested, nothing could be further from the truth. In his sovereignty, he is and does and allows things that we will never be able to wrap our finite minds around or explain with our logic or with our words. He is moving in, working through, and changing lives all over. I heard a quote recently, and it said, when God is doing one thing that we can see, he's doing thousands of things that we cannot see, and that's the greatness of our God. The goodness of his grace, we don't always understand, we don't always see, but he's still so good. And let us never get over the grace that we've been given and in turn the grace that we need to give. Last episode, we began our series called Subtle Strongholds. We established that a stronghold is, by definition, a fortified place, a place of security or survival, a place dominated by a particular person or group or marked by a particular characteristic. We said that we have fortified places in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We have places of security that we retreat to for defense mechanisms, for coping tools, or for social survival. When we are feeling attacked, we hide there. When we are uncomfortable, we run to it. When we are struggling, we lean on it. What we will do, though, throughout this series is walk through some subjects and topics that have made themselves strongholds in our lives. They're not the good kind. We don't find encouragement, we don't find refreshment, and we don't find nourishment by running to them. In fact, many of these strongholds are things that we didn't even intentionally set up or haven't even noticed that they have slipped in and they have stayed, which explains why they are subtle strongholds. In our minds, they're not major character-defining or life-describing things, but they are there, and we need to address them. We kicked off this series by talking about anger, and if you haven't had the chance yet to check that out, let me encourage you to do so as you are able. But today, we're stepping into something a little bit different. Our topic today is different than anger in that it is not an emotion that we naturally feel. It's the enduring of an emotion like but not limited to anger. What we're going to talk about today is the subject of bitterness. Here's how the dictionary defines bitterness. A feeling of deep anger and ill will. A state of extreme impiety or enmity to God. Implacableness, not able to be pacified or appeased. Resentfulness, severity, deep distress, grief or vexation of mind. And so what can we seek to learn from that definition? That number one, anger is a strong emotion, as discussed in a previous episode. But bitterness is a deeper, longer-lasting version of anger. 
Number two, bitterness is wicked and contrary to the very nature of who God is. And that's from the dictionary, not the Bible. Number three, nothing positive comes from bitterness at all. Number four, bitterness is not something that gets remodeled or resolved. It needs to be removed. Living in bitterness is, if you haven't already heard the quote before, here it is. It's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. It's self-inflicted. It's self-abasing. It's self-centered. It's self-directed. Bitterness is many times something that we experience that no one else even knows about. We take bitterness into ourselves and we think, quote, this will show them. They'll know how angry I am and they'll understand what they've done and they will come crawling back. They will apologize for sure. But that's not how it works. Oftentimes people have no idea. In some cases, they may not even know that they hurt or offended you. Now that's not always true and we'll get into that in a few moments. Bitterness, though, can bring spiritual atrophy. It can bring mental strain. It will bring emotional distress. And I firmly believe this. Bitterness can bring a physical malady. And I know I'm not a doctor, so I'm not putting a surgeon's general warning on this. There's not a CDC seal of approval on this. I am sharing an opinion here, which doesn't happen too often. Bitterness is just one of those things that we cannot afford to let settle into our minds, into our hearts, and into our lives. We just can't. So what do the scriptures tell us about bitterness? It's where we love to run most here on this podcast is what do the scriptures say? The first instant that I'll run to is Cain in Genesis 4. We talked about this in the previous episode, so we won't belabor it. But in summary, Cain offered a sacrifice that was refused by God. And in his sorrow, God met him and said, just do right and we can move on. And Cain was angry and inconsolable. He was bitter and then went and killed his brother, who again, never actually did anything wrong to him in the narrative that we get to read. God punished Cain for murder and even in his punishment, showed Cain great mercy and grace. The next example is that of Naomi, which we find in Ruth chapter 1. Anger is not the only root of bitterness, but it is a key factor. In the days when the Hebrews were under the rule of the judges because of their repeated failure to worship God alone, as he deserves, there was a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They had two sons. In a time of famine, Elimelech led his wife and his two sons to a place called Moab. Well, the people of Moab were enemies of the Hebrews. But there was food there, so it seemed to make sense. It was there that Elimelech died, and the two sons each found a wife. One was Orpah, not Oprah, and the other Ruth. They lived there as a family for ten years, and then both of the sons died. Naomi had been through it. The grief, it's so real. She's lost her husband. She lost her two sons. And when she heard that the famine had ended in her hometown, she decided to go back since there wasn't really anything keeping her in Moab at this point. She got two daughters-in-law, but they, they're young. They can stay and find someone else to marry and still live great long lives. But they want to go with her. She says, I've got nothing for you. 
And after realizing that truth, one of them left and went back home, but one of them stayed with her. Now, this decision to stay and go with her will turn out to have eternal implications, but that's not the context in which we are walking here. Naomi returns to her hometown and the people and friends that she hadn't seen in over 10 years, and she left with a husband and two sons and came back widowed and with a widowed daughter-in-law. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi, the name that means joy, that means bliss, that means pleasantness, she said, call me Mara, because God has brought great bitterness to me. Because of the tremendous loss that she had experienced, she felt bitter. Bitter towards God for what she believed was his misfortune upon her life. Don't get me wrong for one moment. It was not that Naomi didn't lose a lot. It was not that she didn't have a reason to feel grief or hurt. Her pain was so real. But as she sat in a fully legitimate and 100% relatable lack of understanding of what God was doing and allowing all of this to happen to her, she turned to bitterness. The next example is a lady by the name of Michael. In 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is a bit of a deep cut, but it's important. Michael is the daughter of Saul, who was the first king of the nation of Israel. She was granted to David in marriage for completing a task that we won't talk about here. Hashtag if you know, you know. If you don't, it's not pertinent to this context. Here in this chapter, to set this up, the Ark of the Covenant of God was the representation of God's presence. It was literally where God met with his people that had been taken, and for some time Israel lived without it. Not just the object itself, but also what was entailed by having it. And we enter the account here as they have gotten it back. It's on a journey back to the place where it was supposed to be. There was a mishap along the way, and the ark began to fall, and a very well-meaning man tried to save it, but was instantly killed. And talk about raining on a literal parade and reading it, it may seem unfair. He was just trying to be respectful and do something good. But God doesn't mess around with his commands. There wasn't room for a nuanced interpretation or for noble intentions. Only the high priest could touch the ark once a year. The man wasn't a high priest and it wasn't that day. But this act was not a stage for the anger of God but a magnification of his holiness. As David understands this, the celebration continues and the ark continues its journey back. David leaps and dances in utter celebration of this. With everything that he has, he's going for it. And honestly, it's none of these ridiculous like Fortnite or TikTok dances. He's getting rowdy. He's shouting and clapping and everyone is cheering. There's music playing. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of worship. Not that a good luck charm has come back, but that God is present again with his people. And in the very next verse, as David enters the city, his wife, Michael, sees him from the palace balcony. She sees him jumping and dancing and the people praising God and cheering. And it says that she had in her heart an incredible disrespect for the way that he was conducting himself. She thought in her mind that he was acting a fool. And before David could even enter the house and utter out a blessing for his home, 
for his family. She sarcastically and in bitterness scolded him. David said, all that I did, I, it was for God. It was a celebration for him. It was a celebration of him. It was a, to the glory of his name, for the greatness of his person. It was all about him. And the final verse of the chapter, though, is really quite interesting. We never find out if she got over that day. We don't know how their relationship might have changed. We don't get to see if she ever saw that day and what David was doing the way David saw it. But we find out that she dies barren, having no children. And there are no modern implications being purported here. None at all. And I'm not touching that. The Bible always needs to be taken in its context. And in this particular context, we see that Michael's bitterness likely was a major factor in how and why it describes the conclusion of her life in this way. The next example is Jonah. Many of us may be familiar with this story up to a certain point, and then I think fewer of us still know the ending. Jonah was a prophet, which means he was the messenger of God to God's people. And one day, God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh because their wickedness and their lawlessness, well, it's gotten out of hand. And if they don't repent, if they don't change their mind about what they're doing and go the right way, they will experience a judgment. Nineveh was a notoriously wicked place, and Jonah was not about that life. He gets on a boat, heading to the farthest place that he could possibly go to avoid doing this task that God has asked him to do. And if you're familiar with the story, you know what happens next. There's a boat that encounters a storm. Jonah realizes that the storm is his fault. It's God's judgment on him for not doing what he said. He asks to be thrown overboard. As he is, a whale comes up and swallows Jonah. Jonah sits in the whale's stomach for three days. And then, after three days in there, then he prays and repents. After that, the whale spits out Jonah. And God tells him a second time to go. And Jonah goes and tells the people exactly what God told him to say. And then God does something incredible. Not that the story hasn't already been wild, but God goes next level here. The entire city repented from the king on down, everyone. Because of the change, God said that he would not bring judgment on them. The very next verse, though, is unreal. Jonah goes, tells them to repent or judgment will come, then he drops the mic and runs off to see God rain judgment on them. In Jonah's mind, these people are wild. They would never repent. They would never. So all I have to do, Jonah thinks, is wait until the 40 days are up, then sit back and watch the fireworks. And when nothing like that happened, but quite the opposite, Jonah, the prophet of God, this is what it says. This greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And that is so mind-blowing, because are you actually mad that no one is going to die? And that they all listened to your message and have been reconciled to God? What is wrong with you? And this just spirals downward out of control. He prays in the very next verse, God, this is what I said when you first called me. When I was at home and I was comfortable and you called me to go to this horrible, terrible place with these awful people, you told me to come here. I told you I didn't want to. I told you that I didn't want to and I didn't want to because I knew that you are a gracious God 
I knew that you are a merciful God. I knew that you are slow to anger, abundant in faithfulness, and ready to relent from punishment. So essentially Jonah says, God, I didn't want to come here because I knew, I knew that you are gracious and that you would forgive them. And then it goes from worse to worser, which I know isn't a word, but that's how bad it gets. He says, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Essentially saying, I would rather die than live in a world with people that have been truly changed by you, but I hate them. Over the next couple of days, God is still gracious and merciful to Jonah, despite his gross marginalization and prejudice. Jonah goes and sits thinking, maybe God will change his mind and will actually bring judgment. He sits in the shade of a plant that God caused to grow. And in Jonah's insane grief over God's goodness, God is still being good to him. And Jonah's chilling. The next day, the sun comes out and it was so hot. And God brought a worm to eat that plant and take away Jonah's shade. And when the sun hit Jonah, he hated it and once again wanted to die. God said, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah responded from the deepest, most dramatic place that he could. And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah's anger over God being too good turned to bitterness over God not being good enough. And the last example that we'll look at is probably my favorite It's probably my favorite chapter in all of scripture, Luke 15. One story, three parts. Most well known for the last part of the prodigal or the wasteful son. This part of the story opens with the statement that a man had two sons. And over the next 13 verses, we will see unfolding the story of the younger of the two sons where he goes and tells his father, basically, I wish you were dead so that I can have my inheritance right now. We see him leave home, spend money with reckless abandon, be left destitute and malnourished, realize how good he had it and how bad it's gotten. He comes back home. He's reconciled by his father back into the family. And then he joins in a celebration thrown in his honor simply for returning home. But the next seven verses give us perspective that may often get overlooked, but it's majorly critical. The older brother narrative picks up in verse 25. He's in the field working, doing what he's always done, being a responsible son. He never left. He never wasted everything. He just stayed committed to what he was supposed to be doing. When he hears that his younger brother has returned home and that the celebration has been thrown in his honor, he cannot bear it. He's so angry. Even the language he uses is indicative of his disdain for his brother and for his father's treatment of his brother. I mean, he comes home with no consequences, no punishment, just a party. And this big celebration is happening and the older brother refuses to come inside. He just stays outside and stays angry. But that anger turns to bitterness when the father has to come out and talk to him. He says to his father, I've always done what's right. 
I've always stayed committed to this family and to the work that's needed to be done here. For years, this has been true. But in that time, you never one time threw me a party. You never one time allowed me to invite all of my friends over and celebrate. But when this, quote, son of yours, he won't even call him his brother. When this son of yours, he wishes you dead, he takes his inheritance and goes and wastes it. And then he comes back and all is forgiven. No big deal. That's not fair. Those three words, whether said or felt, always, every single time, accompany bitterness. Every single one of these examples that we have walked through would echo that. Cain told God, that's not fair. Naomi lost so much in a very real sense and looked at her life and said, but that's not fair. David's wife, Michael, looked at her husband celebrating in praise and worship to God and from her home and in her heart, she said, that's not fair. Jonah looked at God's goodness toward Nineveh in changing their lives, and he looked at God's apparent lack of goodness in taking away his shade, and he said, that's not fair. Bitterness will settle in as a stronghold so quickly and so easily. When we look at our life, when we compare our lives to others, and when we are dissatisfied with the goodness of God. Bitterness is not something that people see on the outside. We talked about that earlier, but I want to share an example and then look at a place in scripture that will help confirm this truth. Have you ever dealt with weeds? I only grew up in apartments in the LA area, so I knew nothing of this. But about eight years ago, I spent a summer in northern Virginia and got to do some landscaping. And it was there that I was initiated into this world. Maybe you heard people talking about pulling weeds. It's a lot of work, and it's not comfortable. But weeds grow like other plants do. If you just cut off the top, if you just remove the part that you can see, wait a few weeks or months, and that weed will be right back. If you want to get rid of a weed, you have to get down and dig it up by the root. If you don't attack the root, the fruit will eventually come back. Here's a verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 15 says this, watching diligently so that no one falls short of the grace of God. And here's where we focus in. Lest any root of bitterness spring up to cause trouble and many become defiled by it. Bitterness is a root issue that may expose itself in various ways. The reason for the bitterness may be something that is real and heavy. But as we mentioned earlier, those three words always accompany bitterness. That's not fair. I'm offended that she picked him over me. That's not fair. I'm angry at how they treated me. That's not fair. I'm hurt that they would think that they could just treat me like that and then not apologize for what they had done. That's not fair. I hate how my day-to-day life has had to be adjusted because of the policies and decisions of other people. That's not fair. But let's step in it. I'm grieved over the fact that my loved one is no longer healthy or present with us. God, that's not fair. 
I'm ruined by the fact that they would prey on my innocence and do such horrible things to me. Whether a form of justice is served or not, that's just not fair. Those are real things. Some of those are incredibly difficult and heavy things. But none of those things are justifiable. None of those things are being explained away. None of them are being diminished or undermined here. Bitterness is not about what happens to us. Bitterness is about the root that comes out from within us. Especially when we say that's just not fair. And in our finite minds, in our limited capacity and understanding, I'll admit, having walked through some of that, I've been there. Losing both parents within about a year of each other, there were times I, without hesitation or remorse, would say, God, that's not fair. It's a normal human reaction to expect a God and the circumstances that he allows to fit within the confines of our, quote, fairness. You're not crazy for feeling that, but it would be wrong to sit in that. Consider this. The sinlessly perfect and distinctly separate creator of the universe veiled his glory in the form of human flesh. He did not start as a full-grown adult. He came as a baby, born to an engaged woman and her lowly carpenter husband-to-be. He wasn't born in a hospital with the best of care, not even in a motel room with the best of services but in a stable with the most common of animals. He wasn't taken and placed in a state-of-the-art neonatal unit, but in a feeding trough for those animals. The pageantry surrounding his birth was exponentially focused more on the announcement than himself. Shepherds, the most common of tradesmen, came to worship him. Two years later, Wiseman finally showed up with his birthday gifts. The king of the universe was born as a baby and he was moved numerous times before reaching five years old because people wanted him dead. Honestly, that's not fair. Consider this. How this baby grows into a man and begins a teaching ministry. And though he is the embodiment of truth and of grace and of mercy, and of love. Though he is the fullness of God in the flesh, only 12 people really follow him. And of those 12, one of them will turn his back on him and betray him to his death. In his most desperate hour, 11 of them would run and leave him all alone, with only one of them coming back. He would be flogged with a whip that had nine leather strands on it. At the end of each strand would be woven pieces of ivory, glass, rocks, and other sharp objects. As the whip would wrap around his body, the end pieces would dig in. And when the whip would be retracted back, it wouldn't just leave a mark, it would remove skin. He would be blindfolded and punched and spit on. His beard would be ripped out of his face. A crown of thorns would be beat down on his head. He would have railroad spikes driven through each of his wrists and one through his feet. 
He would be raised up on a Roman cross and hung for the world to see. The pain was like nothing else. This pain is summed up in our English word excruciating, which means from the cross. He would agonize over every breath. His side would be thrust through with a soldier's spear. And all of this happened to the sinlessly perfect and distinctly separate creator of the universe. And it happened despite the fact that he was lied about, that his judgment was simply an act of appeasement to a mob, that no guilt was found in him, yet he was still sentenced to death. And to top it off, every single thing that happened was for us. For people that didn't want anything to do with him. For people that reveled in our rebellion and rejection of him. For people that couldn't save themselves. For people that did all the wrong. The sinless son of heaven died for the sins of a depraved humanity. Maybe next time we are inclined to give in to that bitterness. The next time we are ready to say and feel like that's not fair, we should run to this scene. We should run to the cross. We should run to Jesus. There's a lot here, so I want to be crystal clear with what I say next. Our circumstances, our hurts, our injustices, our wrongdoings, our grievances, our gains, and our losses, it's all already been and currently is funneled through the hands of the sovereign king of the ages. What has happened to you isn't a surprise to him, nor is it too much for him to handle. It might not feel like it in this moment or the next moment or maybe for a while, but the truth, well, that's not based on how we feel. The truth is that he is in control of all of it, that he's never messed up, not one time, and he's not going to start now. So what can we do as we close? We can trust him. We can trust his care. We can trust his timing. We can trust his provision. We can trust his plan. Yes, even when it doesn't really make sense. In fact, especially then. And speaking from experience, that's incredibly difficult. But we trust him. But also we forgive. And we forgive where forgiveness is needed we already had an episode on this, so I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that as you're able. But we forgive. As we release, we find that that bitterness isn't going to come up. And then we walk in the grace that he's given. It's all over your life. It's all over everything. God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness and favor, it is everywhere in your life. Walk in it. And it'll be really difficult for that bitter root to spring up. But all of this is only possible through the Spirit. And all of it is only possible as the Spirit moves and works and lives within our lives. So, if you'd not consider yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian, maybe you have questions on what that means or what it would look like. That's a good place to be. I want to encourage you to reach out to me. In just a moment, I'll let you know some ways that you can do that. Know that this is a place where you will be loved and you will find grace for wherever you are in life. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell me about it. 
there are a few ways that you can connect with me. By email at remindersofgracepodcast at gmail.com. That's reminders with an S of gracepodcast at gmail.com. In addition, you can find a link to our brand new website, as well as my socials in the info section of this episode. Also, if you could please do me a favor and be sure to leave a review and then click on that subscribe or follow button wherever you engage with the podcast to be certain that you never miss an episode. As you head into your week, as you navigate through your journey, as you face whatever you face, or as you seek to live on mission, be reminded of his grace. Know that no matter what, it is always, every single time, greater still.